Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Magnolia Beef and Seminary has top quality beef products that are raised right here in Mississippi. They also have fantastic gifts for every age. For the best beef in Mississippi and so much more, visit Magnolia Beef and Seminary or find us on Facebook. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music on this hump day. And a fine one it is out there my friend. Uh, very delightful weather. Last evening in particular was Really spectacular, and it's starting out to be a great day, and it promises to be one all day, but we are ready to go. We've got Jason Baker, University of Southern Mississippi ESPN Plus broadcaster, going to talk about USM's win of the Sunbelt Conference Tournament and the road ahead in the regionals over there on the plains in Auburn. Ashley Edwards, coastal Mississippi entrepreneur, former president and CEO of the Gulf Coast Business Council, and also Super Talk Mississippi News column contributor, is going to be coming on at 12.05. Lots of news coming out today, Rhino. It's Washington with a debt ceiling deal. That's pretty much consuming the uh, the news across the great United States. So much to get to there. This is a complicated deal, as they always are. And the reason I say that, I'm assuming it's complicated, because I see lots of discrepancies. Well, you know what assuming does. I do. I didn't intend to do that to you or me or anybody <laughs> else. <laughs> Oh, gosh. But it's math. Why can't we get the math right here? (laughs) You see in this, there's discrepancies. Well, it's this much. No, it's that much. No, it's this much. Come on. Can't we just tell the dang truth about the math here? So it's no surprise that neither side is happy. Totally. Maybe that means it's a good deal, right? Because nobody's celebrating. Generally, that's a sign of a good compromise. (laughs) Well, the Freedom Caucus is threatening to ouster Speaker Kevin McCarthy as he's pushing. It was going to happen. Yeah. So it made it out of the Rules Committee yesterday, scheduled for a vote tonight, I believe. And. the, the the Freedom Caucus says we might have to call that snap vote. Remember, that was a provision 
that cleared the hurdle, eventually seating Mr. McCarthy as the Speaker, that being that any member of the chamber could call for a snap vote on the confidence of the group in the Speaker, in which case his seat could be vacated. He could be sitting back there on the other side of the podium. Man, so they're they're not happy. Now, Mr. McCarthy says, I'm confident that we will pass the bill. If people are against saving all the money of work reforms and welfare reform, I can't do anything about it. Mr. Uh, Jeffries, Hakeem Jeffries, of course, we quote him a lot on the program. He said he expected Mr. McCarthy, by the way, he's the minority leader, pardon me, in the House, the Democrats. He said he expected Mr. McCarthy to deliver at least 150 GOP votes for the deal, and Democrats would provide the rest. My expectation is that House Republicans will keep their commitment to produce at least two-thirds of their conference. Interesting. That's what Mr. Jeffrey said. Now, the president is pushing Democrats to support this legislation, this bill. Honestly, I see both sides. This is what bugs me, though, about this deal. What's that? What is the goal? Tell me what the goal is. First, I get it. We can't borrow any more money, and that does eventually present a really big problem, a small problem in the short term, a big problem in the long term. What's the goal? And I'm asking this of both sides. So let me see if I can... To do the least damage politically. That is the goal. So that they can get reelected, that is, but still I, have something to campaign on. Do we have a ding, ding, ding? We need ding, one. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding. Maybe the breaking news. Wait, we got a bell out there. I could go grab it real quick. <laughs> That's all it's about. Both sides. Look at me. I stood firm. <laughs> but let's talk about it from a conservative perspective. Now, I think most people that fashion themselves as conservatives would say, we got to balance the budget. What you hear all the time, we got to rein in the spending. I agree. We got to rein it in. Except, don't you touch Social Security. Don't you touch Medicare. Don't you touch mandatory spending. Don't you touch defense. Okay, well, you give me 15% of total spending to chop on. Get rid of all of it, 100%. I'm just going to do some math here for you. Get rid of 100% of that 15%, so-called non-defense discretionary spending. You still produce a $1.2 trillion deficit. $1.2 trillion. Which, for perspective... Is twice what it was pre-COVID during the Trump era. And I'm not giving him a pass, as we've talked about so many times before. What'd you say the goal is? Get elected or re-elected, right? Well, to get elected, he says, hey, look, I get rid of this deficit in four years. He said that on the campaign trail. I whittle away the debt to almost nothing in eight. Wrong. No, you're not. 
So all these people, so do the people who oppose it. And I understand their opposition, the, the conservatives in the House. This isn't good enough. It's not what we wanted. I, I'm with you. I get it. What would you do? Could you have done a better job? If you were sitting in the Oval Office with the clueless president and his chief negotiator, really, could you have gotten a better deal? And dis- define better. If the goal is balance the budget, rein in spending, pay down the debt, I think that's the ultimate goal. Well, show me what $2 trillion of the $6 trillion tab you're going to cut. Get rid of all defense. Get rid of all discretionary spending. No military. No government agencies. No Department of Justice. No EPA. No IRS. No DHS. Get rid of all of it. You still got, sadly... A $300, $400 billion deficit. That's just how broke it is. I don't think we acknowledge the scale to which it is so screwed up. You're just, you're not even dipping your toenail in the water, much less your toe. This is nothing. Really isn't. Even what they passed, which was certainly better from a deficit reduction perspective and debt reduction. And it's really not reducing the debt, let's be clear. It's reducing the amount of which we're going to add to it. That's what's a joke about this. Well, so at the end of the day, you know what the CBO says this bill's going to do? Well, instead of adding $12 trillion to the debt over the next 10 years, which I think is low, it's only going to add 10 Relax. We throw a party. <laughs> exactly. It's only ten. Relax. That's insane. That's what we're dealing with here. Because nobody will make the hard decisions. Because you know what happens if you make the the hard choices? You don't get elected. We don't want you to make the hard choices. We want you to make the easy ones. Oh, but you better rain. Even when the hard choices are easy to see. <laughs> That's true. Like all of the waste that goes into just shoveling money into the furnace at the Pentagon. I totally agree with you. And Lindsey Graham is saying, oh my gosh, we're putting the national security at risk here because we're only going (laughs) to increase defense spending by $40 billion next year. But there's no national security risk for being unable to pass an audit or trillions missing from one facet of the government. That's exactly right. So I, I'm in the camp of not agreeing with any, any of them at this point. I'm, I'm looking at this objectively with independent analysis. And, and hopefully we can uh, maybe just speak the truth and just be honest about the deal. It's not doing anything. We're taking a break right here, coming right back, just getting started in the Element Well studio. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. Super Talk Mississippi. 
On the ceasefire text line, Ben from Madison says, preach it. Someone else says, term limits would probably solve a lot of this. You know, I disagree. I think it'd make it worse. I think it'd make it worse, and here's why. Because what we've seen already when members term themselves out, retire, they push for everything they can get to bring that bacon home. We saw it. In the omnibus spending bill, 18 Republicans sided with Democrats to push that thing through. $1.7 trillion discretionary funding, discretionary spending funding. And, and it was loaded with pork. And the top four pork recipients are retiring Republicans. Let me get all I can now before I'm out of here. And that's my concern. It's scorched earth. They go scorched earth when they know they're out. Except instead of the current process where the scorched earth only happens when somebody's like, you know what? I got grandkids. I've made enough. I'm going to go home and take as much with me. That happens on occasion. With term limits, that's constantly rolling over. No doubt. That's exactly right. So why do we keep voting for these people? Why, why don't we term them out ourselves? Why? why? I mean, because the idealistic form of government we have is not realistic for anyone in the middle to lower income brackets. I think a lot of that's true. But they vote. you got a lot of people that probably would have pretty good ideas on how to govern in a representative democracy that genuinely have zero chance simply because of their finances. I totally agree. It's it's become a a rich person's game. No doubt about it. So you're drawing from a smaller pool of people who generally have more goal-oriented mindsets, which some would paint that as having levels of sociopathy, but that's an argument for another day. So you're not having the best. You're pulling the best from the pool of what who can do it, but it's not necessarily the best. Well, and so not only are you limiting the field to those with financial means, but they got to have some desire to do this right. as well, right? So that further limits it. And you look at how hostile, honestly, politics are today. You're putting yourself on the chopping block. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people say, you know, I don't want the whole world knowing every aspect of my personal life. I don't Which blame them. further shrinks the pool of right. applicants and candidates down because now you have... All these other people that would probably do it, right? do a good job, legitimately desire that position, but they have a questionable past, or they had an affair, Don't want or it to they be exposed. plagiarized in college, or this or that and the other, 
And they've atoned for it. They might have even served time for it. But now there's no chance. Right. So not only that, but it was a time at least where there was some degree of respect by candidates and their campaigns not to inject their families into the political competition. Not the case anymore. So you're subjecting your family this to this nonsense. And it's not like, well, it's just limited newspaper, you know, and and media and television, network television. No, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And everybody's got access to every piece of data. Recent Clarksdale says retiring politicians will break that federal treasury to get their name on a building. That's precisely right. What's that guy's name in Alabama? Shelby? Just retired? He, he topped the list. 650 million bucks of earmarks, which included a building, as Reese says, with his name on it. And you remember, we played the clip. He said, you know, I'm going home. I, I don't really care. I just got to worry about my wife says goes go to the store and cut my grass or something to that effect. He's just indifferent. Unbelievable. The people feel that a state loses influence and status when they vote someone out because of the committee assignments. That's an absurd reason, but I get it when I ask. Mike in Gulfport says, I totally agree with you, Mike. So th- this is the the uh, the conflict, as I see it, and the contradictory narrative. is the same people who say, you guys got to be responsible with your spending. You got to rein it in. This deficit and debt, they're crazy. You better go up there and bring me a bunch of money home, though. I've said it so many times. Multiply that by 435 in the House and 100 in the Senate, you got $32 trillion of debt. That's it. And you're right. Mike is right. We, um, It's not just earmarks, though, Mike. He says earmarks should be killed. We've had that. We have that now to some extent. They've been resurrected. But that's a minimum amount. It's It's... That's funding, that spending is not done through earmarks. It's done just through the normal course of business. And it's lobbyists that just absolutely consume the process and influence it to a great extent. But we're at a point now where we could put a complete moratorium on all increases in discretionary spending, we still generate huge deficits because of the mandatory that nobody will touch. Nobody will touch it. Even Trump said, don't you touch that. Republicans, remember that in the midterms? Don't talk about Social Security and Medicare. Okay. Then what? And then they say, don't talk about defense. Lindsey Graham, is he's boo-hooing. You know, he's a big hawk. He's boo-hooing on the defense and how this will just decimate our military and put us in... Oh, but, but Russia's got an arrest warrant out for us. I saw that. Because of his, his uh, assistance to Ukraine and pushing for more. I did a double-take when I read that, not because it was intimidating or scary. It's like, is this, is this satire? <laughs> saw that. Who so, do they think they are? <laughs> Representative Chip Roy, member of the House Freedom Caucus, of course, and probably been 
the most outspoken member with respect to this debt ceiling. Also, uh, we looked him up. Perry from is the head, right, from Pennsylvania we looked up yesterday. He, he's, uh, he's made some comments as well. And there's one of them that's in Missouri, I think, that's been outspoken. But Chip Roy said the debt limit deal that McCarthy struck over the weekend is, quote, a betrayal of the power-sharing arrangement that we put in place. Power-sharing arrangement? I, I missed that. That is to say, the promises McCarthy made to the House Freedom Caucus to give him the votes needed to secure the speakership after a 15-vote round battle in January. So he's basically saying that he did not negotiate in good faith in accordance with their desires. And he did publish a, a fairly interesting graphic that compares what was signed off on and, and passed in the House, supported by the Freedom Caucus, the, the um, Limit, Save, and Grow Act. That's what McCarthy passed. That was his bargaining chip. He compared that to the deal that ultimately emerged from the discussions, from the negotiations. He calls that the GOP, quote, deal with the swamp. <laughs> And he goes down a a list of the major issues, student loan debt, IRS defunding, COVID relief, limiting the increase in the debt to $1.5 trillion as opposed to not having a a limit, a legal limit, a statutory limit. He shows all that in a graphic. It's, It's pretty effective. It's pretty good. And it did pass the Rules Committee by the narrowest of margin, seven to six. And McCarthy goes on, uh, pardon me, uh, Roy goes on to just really excoriate McCarthy. He says, I'll debate this bill with anybody, says McCarthy. Is it everything I wanted? No, because we don't control all of it, but it is the biggest rescission. In history, it is the biggest cut Congress has ever voted for in that process. So think about this. While he's technically right, it's still going to generate $4 trillion of new debt. That's how bad it is. The biggest cut in history, it's only going to produce another $4 trillion of debt in two years. Unbelievable. That's rather appropriate song. It is urgent. It's time we get serious about reining in the spending and not just playing around the edges. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well Studios, the great Tom Petty bumping us into this segment. The waiting is indeed the hardest part. 
That's kind of where we are with this debt ceiling deal. I know the markets ain't very happy today. They, of course, observing the consternation in the chamber. So a friend just texted and said, dumb this thing down for us. What does it mean if we don't pass it? What does it mean if we pass it? That's a good question, reasonable question. So first, let's be honest and not engage in the fiery rhetoric because what you get typically is worst-case doom-gloom scenario right, to boost one's prospects, certainly from the left. And we've uh, shared that a few times. Eight million jobs will be lost, like on the 5th when Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen says, we run out of money. That's what she said. And the Democrats say, well, I guess that day, eight million jobs are just gone? No. So, you hear, well, we default would be catastrophic. And what, they, what they're talking about there is default on fulfilling our obligations to pay existing debt. Now, this is crazy, but think about this, folks. we got to go borrow more money to make the debt payments on money we already borrowed. That's how screwed up it is. We don't have enough money to service our debt, therefore we got to go borrow more so we can service our debt. That's nuts. Think about running your own household that way. How long you'd last. Of course, you don't have a printing press. The government does. I believe the colloquialism is robbing Peter to pay Paul. I think that applies here. Quite fitting. So here's the deal. We're still taking in money. And that's that's the ruse in this whole deal. It's not like we got no cash. No. We take in nearly $400 billion a month. The problem is we spend about 520. So think about your own personal household. Well, I'm taking in this much on my paychecks. I'm looking at my bills here. They're about 25% more. What am I going to do? Well, you either got to make more, spend less, or combination. Same thing we got to do with Social Security. Same thing we got to do with PERS here in Mississippi. It's just math. So... We have enough cash coming in to at least service our debt. And most responsible, shall we say, people and businesses, first thing you're going to have to take care of are your third-party obligations. Think about it. That's the, you got to. You just got to. Because not doing so can be catastrophic. On the personal level, it's basically your mortgage or your rent. You got it. Got to take care of that. You just got to. It's the first thing that comes out. Yeah, absolutely. Same deal here. Apply that same standard, that same principle, to operating the U.S. Treasury. So 400 coming in, 500 plus going out, you got enough money to service the debt. That's where they're wrong about this, because that's about $70 billion a month. 
It's where it, and it it vacillates a little bit, varies a little bit, but uh, in general, now it is true that we still got a hundred and twenty billion dollar so shortfall. You got to figure out what you got to cut. Now again, you start talking about cutting Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, which are statutory, mandatory, which we're obliged to. To satisfy? Yeah, it's a problem. You could just see where that would go politically, not to mention folks rely on that income. All right, so you... The household analogy for that is you're turning all the lights off. You're unplugging your fridge for an hour a day. You're showering every other day instead of every day. You're trying to cut back on the other big bills that you have to pay each month. Yep. All right, so we got defense and we got... This Byzantine complex of non-defense discretionary spending. Literally, the Congress could meet and say, we got to figure out how we're going to get by with $100 billion plus uh, a month, less. Let's figure it out, guys. Let's work it out. We got this giant Department of Defense. We got this gigantic agency complex. I don't think most of us could even hazard to guess the names of all the agencies. Hell, uh, Rick from uh, the, the governor of Texas, he couldn't remember three of them when he was in the debate. Oh, my gosh. But so think about that. we got to find a $100 million and uh, or plus. Uh, and and cut it. Well, you don't think they could work that out? I mean, so it's the point is, it's not quite Rick Perry is who I was thinking about. It's not quite as dire as they want you to believe. And, and there's that, a whole lot of Netflixes and Hulus and Disney Pluses and gym memberships and car wash memberships no and other nickel and dimes they could do without. It's just not politically expedient. That's exactly right. There's so there's a practical aspect of this and there's a political aspect. That's just the truth. So you heard what Representative Chip Roy said and by the way, the the Washington Post, uh, pardon me, the Boston Globe, they say the headline of an article: "Debt Limit Deal Moves Toward House Vote Despite GOP Revolt." <laughs> so, Chip Roy says not one Republican should vote for this. Also, Congressman Byron Donalds from the great state of Florida, who comes from a finance background, he took. To social media to produce a short video, and he advised voting against it as well. He said, did Chip Roy, we will continue to fight it today, tomorrow, and no matter what happens, there's going to be a reckoning about what just occurred unless we stop this bill by tomorrow. Now, let's contrast that to Representative Jayapal who, uh, Pramila Jayapal, who leads the 
progressive caucus, the squad, if you will, in the Congressional Progressive Caucus is what they refer to it as, the CPC. She says, first things first, you have all heard me say that Republicans never cared about reducing the deficit and were just using the debt ceiling as a way to force through their priorities. This deal proves their point. There's no meaningful debt reduction here. Some pieces will actually raise the deficit. The chief thing they claim to care about, they are not getting in this bill. Some truth to that. It's just simply stopping, to some extent, leveling out the trajectory of the increase of deficit and debt. And Jayapal, of course, is mad, as are the progressives, because of uh, the various provisions of the bill that that require work requirements, for example, for TANF and SNAP benefits. The original bill passed in the House also required that for Medicaid benefits. That didn't make it in the final version. That's incensed the Republicans. And the Democrats are mad because what they did get, which was work requirements for TANF and, and um, SNAP, they say, will literally make people starve, is what they're saying. Now, and this is what, again, is a bit duplicitous about this issue. Work requirements already exist for those programs below the age of 50 for childless adults. All they simply asked for was, can we raise it to 55 and the Democrats said no, and they said, okay, how about 54? And they said yes, but you got to take Medicaid out of that, which is by far and away dwarfs the TANF program and the SNAP program by orders of magnitude. And the CBO does a scoring and says, well, based on the exceptions for veterans and the homeless, did you see this? We think you're actually going, we project you're going to add 78,000 people to the snap rolls. Oh my gosh. The devil in the details, as they say. Coming right back on Middays, final segment this hour. Jason Baker, broadcaster for USM, is on with us at 11.05. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Sitting at a tiny table in a ritzy restaurant. We are back in the Element Well Studios. We thank you so much for joining us. So a trillion dollars is enough to pay each citizen 9000 a person. Please tell me who's been paying all this money in. I assume that's Jerry and Waynesboro taxpayers. I'm not sure what the question is. But that's, that's what uh, the Treasury records reflect. Simple as that. And that's, again, with the Trump tax cuts in place that the Democrats said would break the country. In fact, they... But that also doesn't include the half of America that doesn't pay taxes. Correct. That's exactly right. We've shared that data before. It's uh, disturbing when you see that the top 50% 
of taxpayers account for 97.3% of all taxes paid, and the bottom 50% pay 2.3, 2.7. Unbelievable. But that's not fair. I agree it's not. The top 50% pay too much relative to the bottom 50. I'd like for all of them to pay less. But the problem is we end up with $2 trillion deficits because there's no will to truly address the core problem with spending. And every time I see these politicians on both sides get on the television in interviews and say, we got to rein in the spending. Well, mainly that comes from the right. On the left is, we got to raise taxes to cut the deficit. There's no congruence whatsoever on how to do it. But to those on the right, I ask you, okay, what do you want to cut? Be specific. They won't. You know they won't. It's no different than when you ask the left, well, what do you want the taxes to be? They won't tell you. Well, you need to be more. They've got to pay their fair share. They won't give you specifics, and when they propose specifics, it's a joke. I mean, Biden did, and so it is true, and I think it's appropriate. McCarthy takes a bit of a victory lap in saying, hey, look, we kept tax increases out of this deal. It is true. But the biggest chunk of savings, which is just not even cutting the baseline spending, it's cutting future spending, and that's that $550 billion of student debt. And you know as well as I do, that's Biden's holy grail. That's the Democrats' holy grail. Chip Roy, as much as I like you and respect you, your butt go to the Oval Office and get Joe Biden to say, yeah, I'm not for that student debt loan forgiveness. I'll concede that. Good luck, dude. Ain't happening. It just ain't happening. And you may walk away and say, okay, I guess we'll just have to not be able to borrow any more money. All right, well, then get back to the House and figure out that $150 billion a month you're going to cut. Where are you going to cut it? Now you got to get talking turkey. That's why I said McCarthy didn't come to the table with enough. You've got to have more to concede or you're going to concede what you didn't want to concede. It's a it's a principle of negotiating. There's no doubt about it. That's why if you think your bass boat is worth 18,000, you put it in the classifieds for 25. Right. So you have some haggle room. I agree. You don't walk up to the table with 19 and go, "All right, this is all I got to haggle with." Marion Greenwood says, have they considered how much the millions and millions of immigrants will cost also? Yeah, Mary, that's being considered, but that's that's like less than petty cash. I, I'm not saying I support it. I'm just saying, once again, let's be realistic. We need trillions, not millions. Trillions. For starters. For starters. I mean, you could point to a lot of stuff and say, hey, that cost a few million. I agree. And if it's a bad investment or misuse of taxpayer funds, absolutely. Then we shouldn't do it. But we're just, as they say, peeing in the wind. (laughs) Whizzing in the wind. Until we start talking about trillions. 
like this deal here, I mean, it does cut spending. In, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I still say um, the most damning point is if we just went back to pre-COVID spending, agree. we'd balance the budget. That's true, except here's the problem with that. You can't go back to Social Security and Medicare pre-COVID because statutorily that increases. So you got that problem. But I agree with you. If we return discretionary and uh, spending back to pre-COVID, that would help. But then you got to go whack a trillion out of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Nobody's going to do that. And you'd, you'd be breaking the law if you did it, unless you reformed the law. And in that case, you back to the old, you got to get the only people votes. that can actually reform the law don't want to touch it. That's exactly right. That's the, that's the conundrum right there. But, I, but I've got some data for you reading through the bill. And in fiscal year 23, $1.7 trillion discretionary. In 24, it goes to $1590, $110 billion savings, which is great, except the deficit's $2 trillion. We're coming back with Jason Baker. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply. To think deeply. And look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone hour two of middays live from the element well studios on this hump day joining us now jason baker university of southern mississippi espn plus broadcaster we've got the golden eagles jason headed to the plains to play a little baseball having a coming off a really good weekend in the sunbelt conference tournament morning how you doing Gerard, great to uh, be with you, my man, and uh, excited to talk some Golden Eagle baseball. Yeah. Are you surprised at the success the team has had this year? No, I think this was the expectation that was going to come with this ball club. Um, They knew what they returned. They lost a lot from a year ago from that ball club that made it to the Super Regional. But I think they understood a veteran lineup. Um, They sort of knew that they had the pieces in place out in the field and maybe in the batting order that were going to lead to some success. And then when you return an ace like Tanner Hall from a year ago, it was a team that to me quietly knew like, hey, we're going to we're going to be good and we're going to develop along the way some young arms. And if those young arms come on, uh, hey, we can be really good. And I think what you've seen is the work of Christian Ostrander, the pitching coach, in taking those young arms and just sort of being very patient with them throughout this season. And now you're seeing – uh, the dividends of them paying off right now. So how do you think that's going to uh, to, to uh, manifest itself over at uh, the regional at Auburn? What's that look like? We'll see. It's Yeah, I think it looks okay. Um, I think, you know, they got to get off to a good start. Yep. Scott Berry, I heard multiple times yesterday, said, hey, we got to stay in the winner's bracket. Yeah. I look for him to do what he's done in years past and throw his ace in Tanner Hall. To me, what that'll mean is, hey, you're going to get off to a good start. Now, whether that's success or not, we'll find out 
uh, Friday afternoon. But to me, if they get into that winner's bracket and you're able to hold some of those elite arms that they developed through this season, to me, that's where the success is going to come. You know, anytime you get into a loser's bracket, that pitching staff gets thin and all of a sudden uh, that's when success can kind of elude you, if you will. Yeah. Baseball's a unique game in that respect, Jason, when you think about it, because in the other sports, the starting lineups are are fairly consistent. In baseball, the most important (laughs) member of the starting lineup, arguably the pitcher, it's not the same every game. so And that's what makes it kind of neat. I think that's why it's so balanced, the game is. And why, as you well know, any team in the country can beat any other team, and it certainly stands a good chance of doing so, because they all got at least one person that can tow that rubber that can mow the other team down. Yeah, it's, it's a great point, Gerard, right? I mean, to me, you're only as good as your next day starting pitcher. And so from the Golden Eagles standpoint, sure, they're going to go in there with their ace in Tanner Hall, but Sanford's coming with their ace in Jacob Cravey, too, who's really and truly his numbers very comparable to Tanner Hall on Friday. So you're talking about two aces that are going to tow that rubber, and, you know, it's probably going to go to the team that's ace has the better day. Truth sure. be told, maybe get some deeper in the ball game to the seventh or the eighth, and you're right. That's what makes this game so fun, and really and truly this time of year, um, it sort of gives you chills to think about how much each pitch matters uh, in, yeah. from those starters because, man, you, you take a starter that gets you to the sixth or the seventh, um, man, it really sets you up well, and not just for that game, but – truly into the next game because you've saved an arm, if you right, will. Right, absolutely. Uh, Samford, certainly all, always out there. I mean, it's amazing the success they've had for a small program over there. Uh, but they play some dang good baseball uh, in Birmingham. Yeah, and they play a lot of it. They won three games on Saturday to win the Southern Conference title, which is kind of unique. That's not typically the norm, but the way the weather delay set it up yeah. and the way that coming out of the loser's bracket that they did, they had to get three wins, and they did that. And so you're talking about a team really kind of riding a unique wave of momentum, not just winning their conference tournament, but doing it with three consecutive wins in the same day. It's going to kind of bring them in on a high, if you will, and of course – You know, once the baseball's rolled out there, some of that momentum stuff from maybe the previous game, as we just mentioned, right, is kind of thrown out the window because if Tanner Hall's on, then, hey, that momentum can quickly be squelched. But to me, the unique part of it is is they've got a mentality now like, hey, this is what we had to accomplish to get just to this point, meaning winning three games, coming out of a loser's bracket. And so for me – that creates an element to this. If you're the Golden Eagles and you're Scott Barry, you kind of got to guard against that because sometimes you can get caught in, hey, this is a three seed in this regional and we should be able to beat them. But that's just not the case. And you really have to guard against momentum. I'm a big believer in the rhythm of baseball games and a big believer that these these teams sort of pick up rhythms. That's why you see winning streaks like what Southern Miss went on. And I think the Golden Eagles really have to guard against that, especially early on Friday afternoon, yeah. to sort of squelch some of that momentum that Sanford's got coming in. Yeah, there's no doubt. You're so right. The cadence of the game, it, uh, it, it from pitch to pitch, it just can that momentum can change. It's uh, it's it's unique in that respect. Again, unlike other sports where. Pretty much once the steamroller starts, like in football, it's like, I don't see how we're going to stop this. But in baseball, one pitch 
turns the whole momentum around, Absolutely. and uh, oh. you, you scratch your head, and you what's okay? What's your move now? Uh, but that's what makes it fun. That's what makes it cool. Uh, don't want to look ahead, and I know uh, Coach Barry is, but uh, you're scouting on Auburn. What do you think? They're going to be tough, boy. And I tell you, they're led right in the middle of their lineup by a Mississippi kid, Bryson Ware, out of Madison, Mississippi, played at Germantown High School, went on to play at Prover Community College during 2020 for uh, Michael Avalon, the national champion, Prover Community College Wildcats. And he suffered an injury, got injured early, got offered early as well. And Auburn stayed with their commitment, and it's paid a dividend. He's now their single-season home run leader, Bryson Ware is that young man's name in that Auburn Tiger lineup. And, look, he's going to be a force, and you're going to have to navigate it. And you're right, you don't want to look ahead, but you in these regionals, you sort of got to peak and just kind of prepare yourself because the turnaround time on these games are rather quick, right? Southern Miss is going to play at 1 o'clock, Auburn at 6 o'clock. You get that win. You know, you send the team to the hotel and the coaching staff stays in the stands to scout and try to put together uh, as much information as they can rather quickly. And then they roll that baseball back out there and you're out there on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, should should be a good one. And you've, you've got to sort of at least think about pitching scenarios as well. Even though you don't necessarily look to the next game, you've got to plan uh, your rotation. You've got to go ahead and start thinking about that now, don't you? Absolutely. And, you know, the the beauty of it is that Southern Miss now kind of coming into their own on as far as their rotation and health and guys that can give them some long relief. There's been some important kids for Scott Berry step up this year, a Will Armistead, a Nico Mazza. And then you take those two guys who have really kind of played into this long relief role. And in my opinion, over the last month of the season, you could really deem some of those guys the MVPs of the Southern Miss club at the moment yeah. with the way that they've ate up innings, maybe when the starters sort of struggle, like Matt Adams did in the conference tournament, and then it was Will Armistead's turn to step up or Nico Mazza doing the same on Sunday. So to me, those are the guys that really it's about the rotation in, in Hall, Oldham, and Adams, yes. But it's those other arms, in my opinion, that are standing there in the pen waiting their opportunity. You can be, go from a zero to a hero real quick in these yeah. regionals if you go in there and eat up some innings. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, of course, all these programs, what's uh, not a big, I would say not a huge differentiating, differentiating factor, they all play great defense as well. Um, they do. And matter of fact, I think it's... Yeah, I agree, Gerard. I think it's one of the unknown factors of this Southern Miss Golden Eagle Club is their defense because anytime as a pitcher and anytime that you've got an elite guy like a Tanner Hall who's going to induce a lot of swing and misses, yeah. sometimes playing defense, you can get lackadaisical. You can sort of get back on your heels a little bit saying, oh, Tanner's going to get a swing and a miss here. And then when the ball's put in play, you're sort of caught off guard. But this Golden Eagle team has avoided that up to this point and. I, it's really one of the unknown factors in this regional. The team that typically pitches the best and plays the best defense can come out of these things. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And you're right about that. You can maybe get caught on your heels a little bit. Next thing you know, uh, there's a rip in the hole, and you're you're not quite on your feet to get to that uh, because you, you're used to watching him mow people down. I mean, that just does happen. It absolutely. happens in the major leagues as well, as you well know. So, Yeah, it but, does. Yeah, it really does. But uh, I expect that Southern Miss is going to fare well. I like the way they're playing, and, and I think Coach Barry knows how to coach in these situations. 
And that's so important to know when to get involved and when to back off. You got to let the kids play, but you're also the skipper, and you got to you got to do your job. Um, but this is what makes the game fun, and uh, we just uh, congratulate Southern Miss on their success to this point, and we wish them the absolute best of luck. Jason, I know you have a good time broadcasting the game as well. We thank you, man. Absolutely. Thanks, Gerard, so much. You got it. Jason Baker, USM ESPN Plus broadcaster, has been our guest on Middays. We're stepping aside and coming right back. That keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone midday super talk mississippi we are live uh, from the element wealth studios okay i'll have to admit i'm pretty pretty big zeppelin fan i don't know that one the rover what's that all about i didn't know that one uh it's it's all physical graffiti okay i don't know that it ever charted very well but yeah all right all right, back to this debt situation, since that seems to be kind of the biggest news. It's kind of quiet in the state right now, uh, Rhino. Uh, probably the <laughs> the biggest fireworks we had was Senator High Brian on with Paul Gallo yesterday. That's always entertaining. I caught it on the best of while we were sitting here in the studio wrapping things up after middays. Always entertaining. And that, of course, discussion centered around this $104 million grant program for hospitals enacted into law by the legislature, signed by the governor this past session. That was just a lifeline, if you will. And it was to be allocated out by some formula that used the number of beds and so forth. And then it was discovered, we broke a story on it, our news department did, from the medical center in Louisville, Winston Medical Center. CEO said, hey, we can't get any of this money. Why not? Because it is sourced from ARPA funds sent to the states, which had all sorts of strings attached that said, you can only use it for certain purposes. And in the case of hospitals only to cover extraordinary COVID expenses. Well, many have said, well, we already got money for that, and we have essentially been reimbursed for all those additional expenses that fit into the guidelines of COVID reimbursement. So we can't get that money. And what Senator Bryan said yesterday, and I I heard him, you were in here with me, we were cleaning up some stuff, as Rhino and always do after the show. Rhino likes to come in here and show me the latest uh, videos that he finds that puts me into uh, 
hysterics, honestly. It's funny stuff that Rhino's able to dig up, folks. Guys, guys, he's really good at that. Uh, But we were in there talking about that. We just happened to be listening to the best of, which aired yesterday, right after our show. The Gallo Rewind. The Gallo Rewind. Thank you. Not the best of. The Gallo Rewind. My my apologies. Um, And what I heard the senator say multiple times was the word practical. You remember that yesterday? Practical, practical, practical. And what he was referring to is this mountain of measures that are entertained by our legislature, many of which don't ever make it to the floor, the majority of which never get out of committee onto the floor. But he basically said that he missed that. This was a lengthy bill. It's appropriations bill. It was a... Uh, uh, a long document, and that, from a practical perspective, just don't have the time to dig into all those. Well, that's because they filed too many dang bills. I think that's true. Um, and so they just missed this. It's not that they didn't know, because I talked to a couple of other senators. They fully understood the source of the funding was ARPA. What they didn't understand uh, nor did they inquire about is, okay, are there any strings attached? I find that a little specious only because, of course, we knew there were strings attached in the ARPA program. Seems like somebody would have asked the question there in the legislature, hey, are these hospitals actually going to qualify this or because it is being sourced from the ARPA allocation the state got, are there going to be some strings attached, some criteria that might make them ineligible to apply for and receive this grant money? So, And we heard, we heard Senator Harkins last week say that he was unaware of that as well. And I'm I'm not trying to be critical here of the lawmakers for this, but you remember what the senator said, you know, we might have to call a special session even. We might have to address this, I think is the way he termed it, and get back together on this. But it stands right now, I guess we don't know of the $104 million available, how much is actually going to be doled out to hospitals that apply for it that have eligible COVID expenses. At least one senator has mentioned to me, well, we may just redirect that money to use as ARPA allows us to, which means it'd probably go back to cities and counties. Remember the grant program we set up for that? And and remember also the, the ARPA program said, yeah, you can use this in cities and counties for water infrastructure. That was the big one. And remember, it was a matching program that our state set up, cities match the amount they get from the state. Virtually all that I recall took advantage of that. Certainly everybody I think we talked to that's in city government said, yeah, we we applied, we're getting our money. We're Remember, it was, there was some controversy with the city of Jackson because, like, well, hey, guys, you need this more than anybody. Where is your application? Remember that? Last, oh, yeah. last minute. Because I believe our DEQ, if I'm not responsible, administered the program, the water specifically uh, grant program. Mississippi DEQ did. But 
that uh, that's pretty much the main news going on in the state at this point. It's, uh, of course, election year, legislature, and not set. What else you playing got? Playing devil's advocate on that point. Yeah. It is at least a little bit funny that the organizations that are probably the most notorious for creative billing <laughs> can't find a way to get money from the government. Creative billing. Trying to be nice. Everybody knows what I'm talking about with like the $10 that. Tylenol pill. Very creative billing. I like that. Well, back to this debt ceiling deal. And by the way, the Dow down 243 at the present. And that's because investors are nervous about those zany members of Congress can't seem to get their act together on this deal. What happens, this is on the ceasefire text line from Josh in the Delta, what happens if a country that holds a lot of our debt decides that they are ready to be paid and we don't have the money? Well, a couple things there, Josh. First is they can't. Uh, because that debt is in T-bills and Treasury bonds, bills, notes, depending on the term uh, of the issue, and their contracts. And they cannot be called early like that. You can't just say, hey, I want to redeem my principal now. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, most people are shocked to learn, Rhino, that, and you and I, you know, we've talked about this many times on the program, that of the $31 trillion of debt, Outstanding U.S. debt, only six trillion of them, of it, only six trillion, is held by foreign governments, and and a sixth of that's held by Japan. Correct. They have the most. Most people are shocked to find out Japan owns more of our debt than China does. I think it's commonly at least believed that we financed our debt through China. China's over there buying all the debt. No, they got a trillion. Now, I'm not sneezing at a trillion, but a trillion of 31 trillion, not a lot. 3%. I think it's actually dropped from a trillion. I want to say it's in the neighborhood of $850 billion. And that's because they, they've needed less for their own purposes. Right. So um, they, they just haven't been investing in our debt. They've been putting their money elsewhere. So we owe this money, the $25 trillion of it, we owe to ourselves. Now, what does that mean? It's, it's financial institutions. It's investors. There's $6 trillion of it or more is what's called intergovernmental debt. just means that, that um, agencies owe each other. The so, and so security. The left hand owes the right That's hand exactly $50 million, and the right hand owes the left hand $75 million, and they're not willing to go, you know what, we should square up. It's exactly what it is. So Social Security, by the way, of the $31 trillion, more is owed to Social Security than any other single debtor. And that sits at about $2.2 trillion. And that's simply because, by law, the surpluses produced by Social Security takes money in from your payroll, pays it out to the retirees and other beneficiaries. Any excess in any given year is invested in special bonds, they're called S bonds, and they produce interest, which is redeemed by the Social Security Administration to pay benefits. And then they also redeem uh, the principal when it turns out. Most people think, oh, yeah, well, they robbed Social Security. No, they borrowed it by law so Social Security can get income off of what you pay in, and then they just redeem it. 
there's never been a dime of default. So just expunge that concept out of your head. There's no such thing as, oh, yeah, they raided Social Security, and that's why it's broke. But Sticks is bumping us out right here. We're coming back with more discussion on this. Ashley Edwards at 12.05 with us today. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. P. E L and P. There you go, folks. You know, so we were just talking about it being election year in the great state of Mississippi, and that means you want to sign up for the Super Talk Mississippi newsletter. It's pretty dang good. You want to keep up with all the action. The Super Talk Mississippi News team is covering your Mississippi stories. Stay up to date. Sign up for our free newsletter at supertalk.fm slash newsletter. That's how you get all the information you need to stay abreast of the happenings here in the great state of Mississippi. Lots of um, lots of text rolling in on this subject of the debt ceiling there, Rhino. Bill in Oxford says, hey, Gerard, suspend all retirement payments to senators, congressmen, and cabinet until they balance the budget. Well, I'm, I'm trying to follow that, Bill. If they're receiving retirement payments, they wouldn't be serving in the Congress. They'd be retired. So they wouldn't have any lawmaking authority. Now, you could certainly suggest we suspend their, uh, their pay, okay, to balance the budget. So here's the question. Would you accept that they would have to cut Social Security and Medicare to balance the budget in order to avoid suspending their pay? No. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do it. And when you think about the members of Congress that um, we, we looked at the top 50 in terms of wealth yesterday, and I think that cutoff's about $10 million of net worth. So that's 50 members of Congress that could care less about that pay. If you think about it from that perspective. So, I, you know, I, I agree there maybe needs to be some sort of, some sort of enticement. <laughs> we do have the Massey rule, by the way. Thomas Massey, you know who he is, the rather um, right-leaning, strong right-leaning congressman from the great state of Kentucky. Which, ironically, he seems to be on board with the, the debt deal. Because of his rule. So that real simply, what it says is, you got these appropriations bills. So remember the way our, our, our funding of the federal government process works. We have... Mandatory spending, which is in, embedded into law, it's statutory, it just happens. Congress takes no action. That's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, debt interest, and a number of other financial assistance programs. That's 70% of the total budget. Then you got the other 30% 
so-called discretionary spending. It's discretionary because the Congress does have to appropriate it on an annual basis. And so the Massey rule says you got a deadline at which you've got to pass 12 appropriations bills. Unfortunately, often they end up combining those into one giant measure called an omnibus bill. That's what we did in the last cycle. $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill. So they combine the, the, the 12 appropriations bills that appropriate the various functions, functional areas of government. So the Massey rule says if you don't get that passed by a certain deadline, then we'll just move forward with what's called a continuing resolution. That just means spending just stays on the exact same path it is presently, except we're going to cut 1% of it. That's the Massey rule. So that's a bit of encouragement, if you will, to get the Congress to act and uh, pass these appropriations bills. That's why he said, I'm on board. If it doesn't work out, I got the, the, my own rule that I, that I got passed. It was my device that I got passed and enacted into law. So that's why he's on board. What's Again, what's fascinating is, just to show how divided the country is, is Chip Roy and company, the Freedom Caucus, the most outspoken, are saying, yeah, this is a joke because it really doesn't do what we wanted it to do. It doesn't sufficiently cut spending. It doesn't really do anything towards reining in and starting to pull back on the additions to the debt. And then you got the left wing of the Congress that says, this just goes too far. They want people to work for TANF funds. We can't do that. By the way, people over 50. That's <laughs> what's so just crazy. They want to raise the age to 55. Oh, my gosh. They're dying in the streets already, just thinking about it. I mean, that's how far apart we are. And so, again, I think this idea that you just got to hold the line. I'm for that as well. Hold the line for what? But does the fact that Massey is in favor of the deal kind of tarnish the Freedom Caucus's, quote-unquote, conservative bona fides? It would seem it's the first Massey reaction seems I had. to be a stronger conservative than the majority of them. Certainly, he's been there longer, I think, and is uh, consistent, no doubt about it. And I really, I just get this feeling that he sees this as an opportunity to invoke his rule. Which guess what that does for him? Right, right. He's going to run for re-election. It's just, it all goes back to the same common denominator. He, he would get notoriety. And, in fact, he did it. We're talking about it. Hey, I'm for this deal. If he just said, um, I'm against it, he'd just be a member of the crowd. But in this case, he said, I'm for it because I've got us protected. I've got our back with my 1% rule. And so he gets some fame out of that. He gets some political capital for the next cycle. Incredible. Joey, the trucker, says, uh, Gerard, they gave us on the ceasefire tax line. They gave the Democrats and the Biden administration everything they wanted. That's why they voted for it. No Republican, just like 84,000 IRS, they stayed 
I uh, can't follow like the money from the last COVID relief fund. No, they didn't, actually, Joey. That's just it. They did not get everything they wanted. They did not want work requirements on TANF and, um, and SNAP. They absolutely did not. They did not uh, want any reduction of spending uh, appropriations to the IRS. And, in fact, they're warning about the dire consequences of that. You've probably seen that. They, uh, they wanted to raise taxes, big time. They wanted to raise taxes, and they didn't get that. So I, I think the rhetoric kind of ignores the truth of this deal, that it's both sides are really making some concessions. And, and again, like we said earlier, uh, neither is happy. So I don't know that I would say that the Democrats got everything they want. They did not have to concede student loan debt relief. Also, they didn't want increases in defense spending. Republicans wanted more <laughs> increases in defense spending. Um, but And then they did not want to concede any cuts to the non-defense discretionary spending. The, the Democrats, of course, will say that it does not include the more severe cuts that conservatives asked for, and they will tout that is a victory for them. And they also are happy about the fact that the work requirements did not get applied to Medicaid. Only TANF and SNAP. Republicans say that's a loss. Democrats say that's a victory. And I say again, we're, we're just dealing in pennies here. Relatively speaking, it's pennies. We need trillions, not millions. The IRS funding change, remember, they went into this deal wanting to pull back the entire $80 billion that the Inflation Reduction Act uh, called for. Provided for $80 billion to hire 87,000 new IRS agents to harass Americans. Well, they got a pullback, did Republicans, of $20 billion. However, the bill that passed the House was for all of it to be clawed back. Didn't get that. All of the COVID money, I think that was like $150 billion. They got, what, 30 28 something like that, a fraction of it. So in that case, you will have to say, Rhino, they did start high. Just seems like maybe they gave in too much, but we're not privy to the discussions. And just as I know our side says, man, you just got to hold the line and stand firm, so is their side. They're telling them the same thing. Don't you give up on that student loan deal. Don't you give in on that IRS funding. Don't you let them impose work requirements on Medicaid. That's where we are. So you just have a good old-fashioned stalemate. I still say maybe you let the thing just pass, the deadline pass, and see what happens. And force their butts to get in the chambers and figure out how to do with $150 billion less. They can do it. Coming right back. Aha, bumping us out here. We're in the Element Well Studios. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbons. Come on, let's get on with the show! Yay! 
on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays live from the Element Wealth Studios today. And we're here for the rest of the week. I'm not on the road any this week. Not this week. Not this week. Am I next week? Oh, yeah. I'm going to uh, Greenville, right? Celebrity Golf Tournament. Looking forward to that with our good friend Steve Azar. Looking forward to that. So this this is one rhino on the C Spire tax line. We hear constantly, we need to reduce the payments to multiple other countries. So I agree that there's abuse, I think, in unnecessary financial aid this country sends to others. Agree with that. However, once again, I'm just going to emphasize how important it is to focus on the math. And you and I went through this with the Ukraine stuff. And, And I'm no big supporter of sending money to Ukraine, but we've also learned most of the aid we've provided is in kind. It's in old assets that our military was disposing of, and it retired. And we that's a whole, totally separate debate. But we looked it up. Like the last 20 years or so, on average, 30 to $40 billion a year is annually appropriated. And by the way, that's part of that non-defense discretionary bucket of spending. So just for perspective... That amounts to about 0.6% of total spending. So we we need to cut about 40% to balance the budget. Where do we get the other 39.4% from? And that's just looking at it in a vacuum. Correct. That doesn't take into account the geopolitical nature of our contributions to the global community. I mean, if you really want a scary look at what it could be without us, just Google the China Belt and Road Initiative, where they are making huge investments pretty much along the equator to bolster their economy and their ability to gain access to raw resources. Well, and if if they gain access to all the resources, where do we get ours? Uh, they are working diligently, you're right, to gain control, to commandeer. There's no doubt about that. So while, yes, we could save pennies on the dollar by not sending money to these countries, by doing so... You create a vacuum that China then moves in and fills, and they gain influence. And and that and they know that, by the way. They know that there is an attitude in this country that opposes, to a great extent, us investing, as you point out. And they, and they sort of leverage the opening there, I would say. The, you know, and that... When you think about the, the just the money, the funds we send, we appropriate to these other countries, I think that's a drop in the bucket, likely, compared to the cost of the assets we've invested in that we own. 
in those countries and then operate. That's a pretty major cost. Now, one thing I'll give credit to Trump for, and we've discussed that before on the program, he pointed that out for the first time. Look, you guys are getting Europe, for example. You're getting the benefit of our defense. We keep this place from blowing up like a powder keg. You're not paying your fair share to borrow the Democrats' terms when they refer to taxing the wealthy in this country. They don't. And you look at the share of GDP we invest in our defense relative to other countries. It's more than all them combined. Yet they benefit from it because they know we're not going to let the bad guys start dropping bombs into Europe. They know that. And they abuse that privilege. So think about if we didn't have to spend such an extraordinary amount of our federal revenue on funding our defense, yeah, we'd have more money, too. That's what they do. They spend a fraction compared to us when you look at it from from a GDP perspective. And, of course, Lindsey Graham, he's on the other end. You can't give that guy enough money for the military. Can't give him enough. I think we spend, just thinking about current GDP, we spend about $900 billion on the military, 850 Our GDP sits at about 24 25 so we're 4%. Most of these countries is less than one. England, France, Italy, you think they're spending that kind of money? They can't. It'd break them like it is us. That's exactly what the deal is. One of the many factors in our being broke. (laughs) We are taking a break right here. It is time for Fox News and then Super Talk News because it's top of the hour. And when we return, Ashley Edwards, a Mississippi entrepreneur from the Gulf Coast, former president and CEO of the Gulf Coast Business Council, Super Talk Mississippi News column contributor, coming right back. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone. The afternoon portion of Middays is live from the Element Wealth Studios on this Hump Day in a shortened week. And so Hump Day came a little quicker. I've been confused all week on what day it is. That's usually what happens, right, when you have a shortened week. Uh, But we certainly appreciate the holiday, and we, of course, are eternally grateful and can't really express in adequate words our gratitude for those who... Uh, made the ultimate sacrifice 
uh, to defend the good uh, of this country, and we are blessed for it, for sure. Joining us now, Ashley Edwards, coastal Mississippi entrepreneur, former president and CEO of the Gulf Coast Business Council, a super talk Mississippi column, news column contributor, and uh, you might be coming in here and hosting a little bit for us, I think. Huh? I think so. All right. I mean, hey, I've been watching the expert do it today, so uh, I'm getting the uh, ropes, getting learned the ropes here. You're too kind. I don't know about expert. Um, the, I've learned that, uh, as Rhino well knows, this is a little harder than it looks like. Well, I put it this way. It's harder than it sounds like. When you come in here and you watch it, you find out um, I guess just I guess the the tediousness of the task. It's multitasking more than anything else, as you know. We got the text line going on. We got the television. We got the news. We got me and you. We got the guest. Got it's like keeping spinning plates up. You can't you can't <laughs> ignore one too long or it falls and crashes. But we're glad you're here. Appreciate you coming in uh, to take a look and check it all out. Looking forward to you uh, helping us out. Uh, in fact. Uh, you're going to be filling in pretty soon, huh? Maybe next week? I think week? pretty soon. Okay. I, I, that's why they wanted to get me in here quickly, so I could learn the ropes and see how this all works. But I'm really looking forward to it. This is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, no doubt. You'll do great. So you've been hearing all the discussion today about this debt ceiling stuff. Uh, I, I know you you consume all these uh, these matters as well, keep up with that, with the political background and so sure. forth. What do you think? You know, I think that what you said earlier, Gerard, was spot on. And it is, you've got two sides here, both of which feel like they're giving more than they want to give. And both of whom have a base that says, wait a second, this is too much. That's a difficult way to get a public policy solution passed in the United States. (laughs) But unfortunately, it's also a very pragmatic way to do it. Because it's a negotiation where both sides feel like they're not coming out ahead. And generally, in my experience, that's what's best for the voters. Yeah. But, um, you know, look, I think it's a – there are a lot of issues uh, in the American financial system today. Um, there are a lot of issues that continue to pop up with banks. It's something you and I have talked out yep. about before. Yep. And, you know, I, I've certainly heard a lot of the folks on the right say, look, let's go ahead and default here. Um, maybe that's the solution, Gerard, but I just can't seem to think that that's the solution. Because it, to me, it, this is a political and a rhetorical issue that could become so much more. Yeah. And if they're right against the finish line on getting a deal done, I'd love to see them get that deal done. Um, but again, you know, it's hard to ever be in a position where you say, boy, we don't need to really curb spending in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so... I think philosophically I'm with the people that say, let's you, let's leverage this situation uh, to become a little bit more of a budget hawk as a nation. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't seem to be the case, at least with the deal that's been proposed. No, and I, I totally agree with you that uh, that kind of is where we are. And is this another situation where, you know, don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good? I even heard a couple of members of Congress say that they were going to support uh, the measure uh, because of this, and, and, and of course, a lot of people point to the fact that we've had, what, 78 increases of our debt ceiling, which is disturbing on its, in its own right, uh, f- for sure. 
typically it's associated with that uh, discretionary funding appropriation. That's typically when we also, it's usually not a separate matter. That's what's unique about uh, this particular iteration is that we're not, we're not running out of funding. We're running out of the ability to borrow to pay for what we already funded uh, statutorily. So that's what's a little unique uh, about this. One. Of course, the Democrats insisted we need a no-strings-attached debt ceiling bill. So to them, this is a loss. Their side says, you gave in something. You gave in a dollar. We said no strings attached. And to the right, it said, this doesn't go far enough. This doesn't cut. And until we own, own by, have control of both chambers with a supermajority, honestly, or at least sufficient number of the other party to vote with us in the Senate and the White House, we're still subject to the constitutional process. Well, you know, I think I, I, I've thought about this all weekend long, and imagine being Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden right now. <laughs> you've been behind closed doors. You've been negotiating feverishly. You've been trying to get us across this finish line, and then you come out and both of your parties basically say, oh, this is, this is, this is horrible. You know, and so it's in some ways you think to yourself, this is the way the sausage gets made. This is the way government worked. I'll tell you, Gerard, the thing that I keep coming back to as I watch the discussions with the speaker, as I watch the discussions with the White House, this very much seems like the way that politics used to occur hmm. in the pre-Trump era, hmm. where you could get two people from opposing parties together in the White House to, to strike a deal that neither of their parties liked very That's much. True. And so if there's any silver lining in the clouds here, it may be just the fact that we've got two leaders of opposing parties that have been able to talk and at least get this far, which in the America of 2020 or 2021 would not have been, I think, a high likelihood of success. Well, wouldn't you also agree, uh, Ashley, that the reason Congress has such a low approval rating is because the average person says they just don't get anything done. They don't work together and get anything done. I think that's absolutely right, and I think the average person is essentially right. Yeah, I mean, they agreed. don't they don't work together and get right. anything done. The irony of it is that when they finally do, there's mass pushback from yeah. both sides. Yeah. But but that's the nature of the beast, right? That's the nature of politics and government. Um, but again, you know, I think anything to avoid a default. I just don't, I don't think it's a. I think sometimes you simplify these things, and you could certainly. I've heard some great arguments made for here's why we ought to default. I've heard some great arguments made for it's the last thing we ought to ever do. But I think as an institution, the United States of America doesn't need to default. Yeah. I, I just don't think that's Agreed. good practice. Agree. So on the ceasefire text line, you keep talking about everything is such a small percentage. Don't we have to start somewhere? They aren't cutting everything at once. Yeah, I, I agree. And so my point is uh, not that I necessarily op- oppose this this deal. I'm just simply pointing out that if the goal is to balance the budget, if the goal is to start chipping away at the debt, this doesn't do it. This right. this continues producing deficits, This and thus it continues adding to the debt. So it's not that I'm opposed to it. Keep in mind, it's the vocal people in Congress that are opposed to this say, well, this isn't enough. So I'm just a messenger here. I'm just saying that until we start dealing with trillions, we're not going to balance the budget. If the goal is to balance the budget, and you hear that all the time, right? I just wish they'd rein in that spending and balance the budget. we got to pay the piper someday. We can't keep doing this. 
You hear that constantly. Okay, well, you need trillions. That's the only point I'm trying to make here. Well, I agree. Yeah, you could start, and this, you could say this bill is sort of um, an incremental step towards that end. It's, it is. It's just incremental. Could you get more than that? I don't know, because you've got to have the other side to agree to it. So then the the um, the option is, well, okay, we just won't pass anything, and we can't borrow money. And like I said, then you better figure out how you're going to cut $150 billion a month. Right. Not over a year. We're talking about a month. Well, and you know, the, and the interesting thing about it is, too, and look, I was even guilty of it earlier, we say we got to cut spending. But then when you start really getting to the yeah, brass what? tacks of where do you – I mean, is that defense spending? Right. Do we want to, Does Mississippi want to have less naval ships built? Of course not. Right. So it's very difficult to then find that area of government where you can cut that amount of spending. Now, there's certainly some out there. The difficult part for the next five or ten years of politics is going to be entitlement programs are going to be on the chopping block if we can't get a curb on spending, and that is going to be – that's going to have mass effect on the American population. they got to be. And in the context of uh, the state of Mississippi, cutting federal spending means cutting dollars that flow into this state. And we happen to be, as you well know, the most reliant state right. on the federal government uh, in the country. So, the, the, well, in fact, I'll go through some of the numbers and let you react to it when we come back on the other side of this break. Rockin' Robin pumping us out of this segment on Midday. Stay with us. Rockin' Robin. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. That's another one of those songs that consume the entire side of an album, right? Roundabout. <laughs> We're back in the Element Well Studios. We thank you for joining us. Mary in Greenwood asks on the C Spire text line, Gerard, what is that $26,000 per employee they're pushing, mainly Republicans? Well, I think, Mary, that's talking about the employee retention program. That's a COVID program. If you kept your employees on the payroll for, I don't remember the exact time period, but you can apply for some federal money just because you didn't uh, put them on the street while the COVID had everything shut down. Uh, we actually had somebody on the program, as I recall, uh, Rhino, about a year ago discussing it. There, there's fairly complicated process to apply for it. Uh, most CPAs are able to help with that, the small businesses, but it's an employee retention program. And it's just more of this COVID money. That's all it is. So it's not – I don't know about Republicans pushing it. It was enacted a while ago. Um, re- Republicans are pushing people to, hey, this money's out there. Go take advantage of it. That might be the case. So there's another um, statement here 
about Social Security, because we talk about that a lot, Ashley, and you and I were talking about it off the off the air, but we had a text here that says, there are people who don't deserve it, but men and women who worked all their lives look forward to retiring depend on it. Maybe what we need done is all these people making crazy money for doing nothing should be cut back, and that money go into Social Security. Maybe these radio people should take a cut. Maybe take a cut and put that in Social Security, and better yet, get a part-time job say, 20 hours a week. I mean, they should be young enough. So I'm not really following everything. Oh, and another thing, tell your listeners not to have a life when they're young. They must say for their old age, that way they will be too damn old to do anything. There's so much you could be talking about other than cutting a Social Security. Small people have no one to turn to. Get that other 40% from these people who make the 99% of the money. Huh. So, and also show me where you're going to be suffering to get our country out of debt. So, what did you describe that post as? uh, That Sounds like a bitter communist. (laughs) Just take their money and give it to me, because I didn't better myself. (laughs) It's not like public education's been free for longer than this person's been alive. Oh, gosh. Well... First, I have not been uh, a proponent of so-called cutting Social Security. I've simply conveyed that the program is on shallow ground financially, that something's got to be done, or nobody's going to get any benefits. That's the reality of it. And there's three ways to solve it. you got to take in more, you got to pay out less, or a combination of the two. There's no middle ground. Now... Does that mean, hey, we got to cut benefits going out presently to those who are receiving them? No, that would not be right. I would never advocate that. Does it mean that maybe those 20 years away from retirement might have to pay in more, might have to take out less? More importantly, how about just moving the age up? There's been a number of proposals, um, but when you even think about Hey, let's move the retirement age up, which hasn't been touched now since Reagan, by the way. When you talk about that, you see what happens in France. They pour into the streets and burn the country down because you want to go from 62 to 64. The Democrats, all they want to do is just tax the ever-loving snot out of the high income earners to pay for the benefits for everybody else and then don't give them any. That's what they want. Well, sure, that's one way, and that addresses the problem, but it doesn't solve it. But the bigger thing, Ashley, is from a political perspective, there's no secret about this. The program's going broke. 2023, CBO just moved it back from 34 to 33, said, yeah, it's running broker quicker than we thought, faster than we thought. Medicare, 2028, they say we can't pay all Part A benefits, and nobody will lift a finger on this. It's absolutely incredible, Gerard, and it reminds me of something my old boss, Haley Barber, used to say a lot, and it and I think it, it bears repeating, and that is, politics is about winning elections, right? It's about winning elections. The idea of cutting entitlement programs is DOA in politics. It is a dead loser, as we've seen in France. Yeah. You know, I mean... And so it, it it begs the question, because you're absolutely correct, and you say it all the time, I watch your show, it's about math. 
the the math doesn't add up here. It's not my math. It's not your math. It's just math. It's unambiguous. There's not going to be enough money there. Government's going to have to do something at some point. But we also know that this issue is a dead political loser. So, you know, what happens here? Um, I feel sorry for my children because I think about the things that we're going to leave them to have to solve that there's no stomach to solve currently in our society. Right. And I think this entitlement spending is going to be one of them. Um, but there's no question, as time goes on, as people live longer, uh, as the amount of money that's available for Social Security continues to dwindle, uh, this is going to become more and more of a crisis. And it's a crisis that we're going to be facing in this country and are going to have to face head on. It's not going to go away on its own. Man, it's, it's almost, Ashley, an abdication of duty on yes. the part of lawmakers not to address this. We just had this this huge um, debate and negotiation on the debt ceiling, and, but right off the bat, both sides said, oh, but we can't cut, touch 70% of what we spent. Right. That's off the table. Can't touch that. And Republicans say, we can't touch defense. And the Democrats say, we don't really want to touch non-defense, though they conceded. You'd have to say, Republicans got the best uh, end of this deal. Is it what they wanted? No, it's absolutely not. Uh, Is it acceptable uh, to the Freedom Caucus, certainly, and others in the House? No, it's not. But you'd have to look at it honestly and objectively and say Republicans got the best end of this deal. I completely agree with that. When you look at the details of the deal and you consider the fact that we've got a Democrat administration in Washington, which historically, at least historically speaking, has been uh, much more excited about lots of discretionary spending and lots of government programs, but you see that based on the deals that have been done, and even the last couple of years, we're seeing the numbers improve. Now, slightly, slightly improve, but improve, I think that this is a good deal for Republicans. Right. If I'm a Republican in Washington, I look at this and say, you know, we didn't get the wool pulled out of our eyes here. There are a lot of priorities that we had. I think it's a good deal for Republicans. I think it's a good deal for everybody if it's a deal that can get done. Sometimes the best deals are the ones that I can actually pass. So you wonder... Does it make sense to get this deal done and then keep plowing, keep working? This doesn't mean it's over. We all know that because this deal's still going to add $4 trillion of debt uh, over the next two years, and that's basically just keeping things the same, pulling back a little. That's the best they could get because Joe Biden is not going to say, or nor Democrats, okay, this non-defense discretionary spending, let's just eliminate every bit of it. And we still got a $1.2 trillion deficit. So I, I'm not sure what they want. I, I almost wish to some extent that Chip Roy, who, again, I like, I respect. I think he's a good rep, and I think he's spot on on many things. And he's been the, I'm picking on him because he's been the most vocal. He's kind of taken right. the mantle here on, on the behalf of the Freedom Caucus. Is it, would it be possible for him to be able to negotiate with Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and um, and their staff directly. You think they would accept that? Let him go in there and see if he can do better. I I mean, I'm being honest about that. And then also, uh, Representative Roy, I've seen your comparative chart. It's good. It says this is what we voted for in the House. This is what we got. There's a delta here of a couple of trillion dollars. Um, I I get it, and I agree uh, with that. But have you sat down and put 
a budget together that's balanced? I'd like to see that. Well, it's it's the difference between agreeing with somebody in principle and agreeing with somebody in fact, right? Because <laughs> in principle, there is there is no member of the U.S. Congress who says we have to live within our means as a country and cut spending that I'm ever going to disagree with <laughs> on that issue. Again, it goes back to the math of it. But as you pointed out earlier, Gerard, where where do you go and do the things necessary? You're talking about amazing institutional reforms of government to free up the kind of money that we're talking about. And I think sometimes people don't really think about how deep of a hole we've dug ourselves into the country. I agree. You know, th- there's no stopgap measures or sort of half measures that get you from here to there. Well, unless you, if you're a Republican, unless you go before the country and say, we've got to rein in spending, but okay, that's, that's an abstract statement. Right. What do you want to rein in exactly? And how does that get us to where we want to be, which is balancing the budget and at least starting to pull back on the debt and retire some of that? But we're, we've got a break on us right now. We're in the Element Well Studios. we got some other text here on the ceasefire text line, one in particular. How come we're running out of money for Social Security but never for welfare? That's from Lance. We'll address that when we come back on the other side of this break. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Oh, mama, I can hear you crying. You're so scared and all alone. Hangman is coming down from the gallows and I don't have very long. What is this, Sticks Day or something? You stuck on that? I had this stuck in my head this morning. Okay. Had to get it out. (laughs) Next, it'll be Mr. Roboto, which took Sticks down because Dennis DeYoung insisted on that nonsense. (laughs) We are back in the Element Well Studios. Uh, We're visiting with Ashley Edwards. So, Larry and Miles, no, Tim and McGee. Gerard, are you going to be off the show? No, I'm still here, Tim. Uh, but Ashley is just uh, getting uh, acclimated to the uh, the systems and the whereabouts and the goings-on so that uh, he can come in and help us out when we're in need. I am going to be off next Thursday, I believe. I'm headed to Point Clear. I've been asked to speak to the Mississippi Hospital Association. And... Uh, of course, they've been in the news a lot lately, shall we say. I'm not talking about that. I've been invited to speak to them at breakfast about politics. I don't have a clue what I'm going to say because there's just no content to there that we're familiar with. No, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, just probably share a lot of things we talk about here on the program. And, of course, there's a whole week between now and then, so a lot can happen uh, for sure. But I'm looking forward to that. Uh, should be fun. So on the ceasefire tax line, we did have the question from Lance. How come we're running out of money for Social Security but never for welfare? So we're actually running out of both, Lance. Um, we borrow money uh, on all accounts. And really, more specifically to your question, though, Lance, it has to do with accounting. 
and fund accounting specifically. So Social Security and Medicare have their own funds. And what that really means is that if you think about on your paycheck, you uh, are subject to Social Security and Medicare taxes, so-called FICA taxes, and those go directly into the Social Security and Medicare trust funds, their funds, and then benefits are paid from those funds. So it's a pay-as-you-go system. Money comes in from workers uh, through their paycheck, their payroll contributions. It goes out the other door to beneficiaries. It's not like your money is sitting out there in an account with your name on it, and it's waiting for you to retire. That would be a defined contribution plan, like a 401k plan, and once you've spent it all, you're out. No, it doesn't work that way. It's a defined benefit plan, which means you receive benefits until you die. So um, it's it's a little different situation, and the reason it's running out of money is because the expectation is that there's enough money coming in from those working to pay the benefits to those who are retired. And when the lines cross there, which means we don't have enough money coming in to pay those benefits because we got too many people retired, or I shouldn't say too many, but more people retired receiving those benefits versus people paying in to fund those benefits. When Social Security was created in 1935, the ratio of workers to beneficiaries, 100 to 1. 100 people working, paying in for every one person retired, taking out. Today, that ratio is less than 2 to 1. Why? Because we're living longer, for one thing. Our population is aged. We've reproduced and propagated less. we got fewer workers paying in and more people uh, who are receiving benefits out. He said, I get all that. Keyword workers, most welfare recipients never pay a dime in. Well, that's not actually totally true. Some of those benefits are subject to Social Security, and that's still a teeny tiny fraction of the population. For example, people on Medicaid are receiving uh, Medicaid benefits, but they're working and paying in, except the children. Or they're old and they paid in all their life, and they're in the indigent elderly covered group. So it's it's way more complicated uh, than just that. In the so-called welfare checks, by far the biggest welfare program, by far, is Medicaid. Medicaid. And that sits at about $600 billion. So in the state of Mississippi, we, we didn't get to that, and actually I'm going to get you to react to this. So our budget for fiscal year 23, $26 billion. $20 billion of that comes from the federal government. Right. $6 billion is state general fund money, close to seven. The biggest program there and the biggest take, Medicaid. It by itself is $6 billion from the federal government. So when you talk about reining in spending, when you talk about balancing the budget, Medicaid is a huge part of our federal deficit. Ninety million people in this country on Medicaid during the COVID era, that's going to back down as people are being disenrolled uh, now that that rule has changed. But Medicaid is a huge program. It's as big as our entire general fund, and it's a major issue in the state of Mississippi. It's a huge issue, uh as a state, we get a higher ROI for our tax dollars than any other state, as you well know. Yep, the federal match. That should mean something to every Mississippian because we have to look at it a little bit differently. You yep. know, we we are the recipient in some ways. I mean, I hate to use this term, but 
in some ways, we're the welfare recipient of the American taxpayer because we're getting no a doubt. lot more than we're putting in. No doubt. More um, than any other state. More than any other state. And and that's important to remember. And so it's it's always got to be at the back of our minds when we have conversations about federal spendings or, or even the state accepting federal money. Right. Which has been, you know, the, the heart of this Medicaid issue. Uh, and you were right with what you said earlier is absolutely correct. I mean, there are businesses all across this state. There are employees who work in these businesses all across this state who depend on that money to flow so yep. they can continue to put food on the table. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes the politics or the political rhetoric of these issues doesn't quite tell the whole story for what it means for the average Mississippian out there. I've always been a proponent of uh, accepting every federal dollar we can accept here. Uh, it isn't as if they're just not going to spend it if they don't send it to Mississippi. And that's just sort of a pragmatic way of looking at it. If I thought that by Mississippi saying, we're going to leave these federal dollars on the table and not take them, that the federal government would wise up and become very physically responsible, then maybe I'd say that's a good idea. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I'd rather them come and build roads and bridges and jobs for Mississippians than for folks in California or New York or North Dakota. And, in fact, it's it's Medicaid, by far, as you know, tops the list right. of dollars that come into the state. And then it's just what you said. It's roads, bridges, and education are the next two that's right. major recipients of, uh, of federal money. Um, and that's not – I mean, the big part of that is welfare, but it's Medicaid welfare for what for what that's worth. And that's a, that's a nationwide issue, the federal match in Mississippi. Um, the federal government pays three-quarters of our Medicaid. We pay a quarter. Should we tell the federal government, hey, look, in an, in an effort to help uh, rein in spending at the federal level and balance the budget, just keep your $6 billion. We got it. Right. And I hear people say, well, shouldn't we just call upon the faith communities to help that? I'm all for that. But we're going to dump a $6 billion tab on the churches in the state? They won't, can't afford that. Won't work. That won't work. Won't work. No, I mean, look, it, th- this is one of those issues that's it's going to come to a head uh the politics has i think slowly over time started to move more to an acceptance of a medicaid expansion in mississippi we'll see if that pans out there's certainly some very prominent politicians who are opponents of that uh but on the same note uh you know folks that uh that are medicaid recipients the last thing they want you to do is touch their medicaid uh, those that don't have Medicaid that think they ought to have Medicaid <laughs> are going to feel strongly about it. And um, at the end of the day, I, I, you know, I, I just have a feeling that this is one of those issues that's going to end up in the dustbin of Mississippi political history once we accept that money and move on. Medicare is is similar. You know, a lot of people that uh, you and I both know would say, you know what. Uh, I'm against the government being involved in health care, but don't touch my Medicare. Oh, that's I right. I mean, hear that all the time. Well, what do you think that is? Well, it's like your it's like your text earlier. You know, uh, folks don't want you to touch their money, but they don't mind spending yours. Right. You know, um, but but you're absolutely correct. I mean, these entitlement programs become golden cows, and once they're there, you you never get rid of them. Right. Um, I understand. I have complete understanding for someone says I don't want to expand it any further than it already is. Sure, because that's how we got in this pro, you know this this Agreed. situation in the first place. Agree. But as you have said a number of times, that in itself is not enough to make a drop drop in the bucket yeah. of what's going on in our country. It's nothing. So. so, Larry and Mize and a couple of other people said, "Why are y'all calling Social Security an entitlement? I've been paying in for forty years. That's right, Larry. It's an entitlement, meaning you're entitled to it." 
I don't know why that's so confusing to people. I'm not, I'm not trying to get on you, Larry. It's, a, it's widely thought that way. Most people think the word entitlement refers to welfare. It doesn't. It means you're entitled to it. Right. You paid in to earn your way into the system. you got to at least work and pay in 40 quarters, is what federal law says, to be eligible. So I'm calling it an entitlement because that's what it's called. That's that. Right. That's what it means. It means you're entitled to it. We admit. We agree. You paid into it 40 years. You're entitled to it. The question is, Larry, and a serious question: How much are you entitled to? More than you paid in, plus reasonable return on the amount you paid in, because that's what's got it broke. People live longer. They outlive that amount you paid in plus a reasonable return. And Medicare's even more upside down in that regard. But we're coming back with a final segment on Middays from the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Some people call me the Space Cowboy. Yeah. Some call me the Gangster. I think that was from my high school era. Steve Miller Band. I saw him perform with Journey, you know, a couple years ago. Oh, yeah. Fronted for him. Really good. Still. Good shape, too. Elimination of half the 8 million federal bureaucrats from the payroll would be a start, says recent Clarksdale. Only problem is, Clark, they're not but 1.7 million. 1.7 million federal employees. There's not 8 million. I don't know where they came from. Uh, so there was something else here. Yeah, so this term entitlement. And apologize for that, Larry. He says, so why is it? Why is welfare called an entitlement? It's not. It's people who think it's called an entitlement. It's federal assistance. Uh, Entitlements specifically refer to Medicare, Social Security. Medicaid is federal assistance. Housing assistance. SNAP. Uh, TANF. Those, that's, oh, those are all federal. In fact, it's temporary assistance for needy families. They're not called entitlements. Just, just wanted to make sure we get the, the nomenclature straight here. Because it, it is conflated. Uh, regularly. And I know people get mad about that, and I understand it. I agree. You paid into Social Security, you're entitled to it. That's why it's called an entitlement. There's something else here that comes up a lot. Um, Social Security and PERS, those of us 50 to 20 years in the system, what do we do, and how do we not feel stuck? There ain't nothing That's what you I was talking do. about during the break. My generation and everybody younger, we've been told from about the time we learned what Social Security was, well, don't really worry about it, because it's not going to be there for you. Donald in Oxford says, why don't we take off the cap of Social Security taxes on income? I think it stops around 160 k That would be music to Bernie Sanders' ears there, Donald. <laughs> because what Bernie and Liz Warren and others have proposed, a couple of different scenarios. One is just completely eliminate the cap. The other one you see that's frequently tossed about is that, uh, have a donut hole, if you will, that, that the cap still maxes out at 160, but then contributions pick back up at income over 250. Now, the other part of that they want to do is means test it and reduce the benefits so to the people who make more than 250. So is that fair? That's just 
blatant redistribution. That's right. So what they want is high income earners, you guys pay more in, but we're going to give you less out. Is that fair? That don't sound like an entitlement to me. Aren't you entitled to that at the same level other people? That's how they want to fix it. And it actually would fix it. You could just add add the payroll taxes to all income over two fifty and just have that, that donut hole there. Sure, that would shore it up. But then those people get less out. That's fair. Yeah, it's it, look, it's it's tough, and it, I think that's where the political rhetoric in America just gets us every time, Gerard, because <laughs> we don't often think about what we're actually saying when we say some of these things. I mean, look, I I, I listened to Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders speak, uh, and I and I feel a little bit puzzled. But it's not just folks on that side of the equation. I mean, they're just unfortunately there's far too many folks that would be willing to negatively affect your life and your wealth in ways. And I think what we ought to be thinking about from a government standpoint is let's keep these folks out of our money and out of our pocketbooks. Agree. Not figure out more ways for them to get in it. Yeah, I totally agree. So what is your opinion on the flat tax? I'll share mine real quick, then I'll let Ashley weigh in. So, you know, uh, the first response I always had to that, Ashley, is flat tax on what? Right. So um, on income, on consumption, uh, you know, we had the so-called fair tax, which is a consumption tax. And by the way, you've probably seen the ads. We played it the other day, didn't we, Rhino, where Trump is just blasting DeSantis because he supported that, which is a national sales tax, if you will, in lieu of Social Security, Medicare, and income taxes. That piece gets left out of the Trump ad. He misrepresents what uh, DeSantis and others have, have uh, supported. By the way, there was a bill this year in the House. It got killed. It didn't even make it out of committee. It gets talked about a lot. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, the question always is, are you going to tax production or are you going to tax consumption? consumption. And, and um, you know, look, taxing consumption, for example, the grocery tax issue that comes up in Mississippi, in Mississippi regularly, yeah. Yeah. that's a consumption tax. Right. Uh, do folks want to see higher grocery taxes? Now, perhaps there is a fine ground there that says maybe consumption taxes on things other than oh, those that we need to live. Yeah. Right. Uh, but let's be honest about it. We've we've always tried to kind of s- straddle that fence in the United States where we're taxing both production and consumption of certain of certain types. Right. Uh, and as time goes on and consumers change their behavior, there's going to be a whole lot of things to look at in terms of what are those new sort of tax opportunities in the commerce that's occurring in our country and in our society. Yeah. Um, and, and that, frankly, scares me a little bit, because every time there's a new opportunity to tax something, <laughs> usually that's the first thing that gets hit the hardest. That's exactly right. You know? And in the case of uh, Europe, which is often pointed to as utopia by the left in right. this country, they have both. They have income tax, plus they have VAT tax, value-added tax, which taxes consumption at, at every layer in the process. Right. Not just at the retail point, but at the distribution point, the production point as well. That's right. Of course, they have egregious benefits, and they retired 60, right? That's right. <laughs> it's pick your poison, right? Either either we want to make the money we uh, keep the money we make or give it all to the government and hope Absolutely. they take care of us. I trust myself better than I trust government. I agree. Ashley, appreciate you coming in. Enjoy Thank it. You. Look forward to, uh, to hearing you. I'll be back in the studios with you again uh, tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, and God bless everyone. Super Talk.
Mississippi Media Production.